The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. As we come to the fourth and final servant song of Isaiah, we finally arrive at the song of the suffering servant. Indeed, the underlying theme of all of these servant songs of Isaiah has been the suffering servant. But each of the other songs is focused upon a particular aspect of his work and ministry. Initially, we looked at the song of the chosen servant in Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 49, we found the song of the successful servant. In Isaiah chapter 50, we looked at the song of the steadfast servant. Finally today, in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, we come to the song of the suffering servant, which we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. Join us today as we begin to look at the introduction to this suffering servant, and we begin to see the work of this suffering servant, which is the finished work of salvation that he would accomplish when he came into the world. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. Blessed assurance, Jesus is
Isaiah, the 52nd chapter. We're going to begin reading in verse 13, and then a little bit later on, we're going to move into the 53rd chapter, and we will go through that chapter as well, the Lord being our helper. As you know, we've been talking about the servant songs of Isaiah. There are four such songs. Now, these are just uh, nothing uh, special about them except in the sense that they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they don't separate out from the book of Isaiah. They're not something that was inserted in the book of Isaiah. It was part of Isaiah's prophecy. They're not special in the sense that somebody later decided to put them in or to, to add this to it. They are part of Isaiah's prophecy that was inspired by God. If you remember, the book of Isaiah is almost a mini Bible. It's got 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters correspond to the first 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, they talk primarily about justice and judgment and the coming judgment of God. And then beginning in chapter 40 and going through the rest of the books, they correspond to the number of books in the New Testament. And they begin to focus upon the coming Messiah and upon the redemption and grace that's found in him. And we've been talking about these servant songs for a few Sundays now, and hopefully we'll finish up today. But this song here, this fourth song, you know, the whole focus of the servant songs is upon the suffering servant. The idea that there is someone coming that is going to suffer, and that suffering means something. Well, here we've, we've looked at the chosen servant in chapter 42. We've looked at the, uh, the steadfast servant uh, last time. We looked at the successful servant the time before that. Well, now we are focusing directly upon that suffering servant. This is the song of the suffering servant. And in many ways, this is the climax of the book of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, Isaiah... It's been called the fifth gospel. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, the, the great writer and great theologian of, the, I think, the third century, uh, he called it the fifth gospel. John Calvin's sermons on Isaiah 53 were entitled The Gospel According to Isaiah. And Spurgeon called it a condensed Bible. It's the focus of everything in the scripture. And indeed, as I said, it is the centerpiece of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, we're going to begin reading here in chapter 52, and we're going to read about three verses. These three verses, this is where the servant song begins. And these three verses pretty much sum up chapter 53, which is also a part of the servant song. So let's look at verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee... His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him.
For that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Now, this is the introduction of the suffering servant. This is the portion of this servant song that introduces us to this suffering servant. And notice in verse 13, we begin to see him in his divinity, in his divinity. And it kind of references us back to chapter 42. If you remember in chapter 42 and verse 1, Isaiah said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. That's how we began to be introduced to this suffering servant in the first place in chapter 42. He is the servant of God. And remember that being the servant doesn't make him less than God. You see, the will of Christ was identical with the will of his Father. The, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are on the same page. One thing you can count on, we said this last time, one thing you can count on in life is the complete unity of the Godhead. There is complete harmony among the triune God. The God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are on exactly the same page. Sometimes we're not all on the same page, are we? Even in our marriages, sometimes we can be not on the same page. But I can tell you, beloved, the Lord God Almighty, the triune God, is on the same page. And calling him a servant does not make him less. And notice about this servant, what he says here, in his divinity, because he is divine, because he is God, he shall deal prudently. He shall deal prudently. Now that word, that phrase, deal prudently, that means to act circumspectly or to act in wisdom. And it also means to prosper or to have success. And, and in other words, what we're being told here is, is that this suffering servant is going to deal with the matters that he's going to deal with in a way that they will prosper. They will prosper. Some of the matters I deal with don't prosper. Some of the things I do fail. <laughs> Some of the things I do get almost done. They get almost completed. I'm almost successful. But not this suffering servant. He will deal prudently. What he does will prosper and it will be done in such a matter that in such a, a complete matter that he finished it. You remember what he said over in John chapter 19 and verse 30 as he was about to give up the ghost. He said, it is finished. It is finished. There, there were times when daddy would give me a job to do and he turned me loose to do it. And, and I'd cut a corner here and I'd cut a corner there and I'd try to cover up something over there that I hadn't quite done. He'd come back to check on it. And I said, daddy, I'm done. <laughs> I finished. And he'd go kicking around and looking and say, what about that, son? What about that? What about that over there? And, you know, pretty soon I had a whole new job to do. <laughs> but I'll tell you, beloved, that didn't happen with God the Father and God the Son. God the Father didn't come down and say, okay, well, let me, let me look over your work, son. And say, well, wait a minute now. You left out that old brother over there. He, he, didn't, he didn't quite get it done on his part, and you didn't quite get it done over there on that. No, he didn't do that. It is finished. He dealt with this matter so prudently that he completed it. He finished the work. The thing, and, and that word, uh, it is finished. I, I like that. It's, it's one word in Greek. Tetelestai is the word. And it has to do with the end of things, okay? It literally means to perform or to complete or to fulfill so that the thing done corresponds to what has been ordered. Isn't that something? If you've, if you've tetelestied something, <laughs> 
If you've finished it like Christ has done, then you've done it according to the plan, according to the order. It literally means to carry out the contents of a command to do just as commanded. And, 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 and in general, when you start talking about the notion of time, like completing it in time, it means to perform the last act which completes a process and to accomplish it. That sounds a lot like eternal redemption, doesn't it, that we read about in the Scripture. See, this servant will deal so prudently that he will finish it, and he did finish it. He carried it out to a jot and to a tittle. He completed the law. He fulfilled the law. He, he carried it out. He, he, he obeyed it to a jot and to a tittle. A jot is the Hebrew letter yod, and it's the smallest little letter in the Hebrew alphabet. All the other letters, you know, I mean, if you saw it written, you'd understand. It's just a little tick mark kind of at the top of the, top of the line. And, and the tittle is, is, those were the little pronunciation marks that they would, the little wispy marks that the scribes would add. You know, in Hebrew, the Hebrew language doesn't have vowels. It's kind of, kind of a, interesting that way, and uh, it's, it's a little hard to learn. Uh, when I was taking Hebrew, it wasn't that easy. It was, you know, he, Greek was a lot easier because it had vowels and those kinds of things. Hebrew didn't have any vowels, and you had to kind of judge from the context what the vowel should be. And, but they, the scribes through the years began to put these little wispy marks at the bottom of the, of the letters that would uh, tell you what the vowels should be. And Jesus even completed that. He fulfilled it to a jot and to a tittle. Just to make the point, Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill it in every aspect. In the least of the least commandments, I fulfilled it, you see. And because of this... But he said, my servant shall deal prudently because of that he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. See, because of what he's done, he gets all the glory. Now, now look, I don't, I don't want to harp on this for right now. We're going to come back to it in a minute about him completing the task. But if he had not completed the task and he left just a little bit for me and you to do, you just got to... Pray this prayer. You just got to accept him. You just got to, to do this or do that. Then Jesus does not get all the glory. We got to get a little bit because at least we did what we were supposed to, right? So, so, so you see, that gives man the glory. There's a place in the scripture, I believe it's in the book of Isaiah there later on, where he says, my glory will I not give to another. Beloved, he gets all the glory. And he shall be extolled and exalted and be very high. We read in the book of Hebrews that he has sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. It doesn't get any higher than that. It doesn't get any higher than the throne room of God. <laughs> That's the divinity of this suffering servant that we're being introduced to here. But now look at verse 14. In verse 14 we begin to see him in his humanity. Now remember this vision of the exalted, extolled, very high servant of God here. But notice the contrast in verse 14. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. That's a quite different picture of the Lord Jesus Christ than what we see when he's exalted upon his throne, is it not? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and yet this is him as well. Well, beloved, this is a, a vision of him in his humanity here on this earth. 
when he came down to do the Father's will and to pay the sin debt that you and I could not pay. And I want to say to you, beloved, these sanitized pictures of Christ that we see paintings on the walls and sometimes hanging even in churches, beloved, those are not the true picture of Christ on the cross. You could not bear to look upon the picture of Christ, the true picture of Christ on the cross. It would turn your stomach. You would be sick to your stomach. You might, you might even pass out if you're one who faints. I'm telling you, beloved, the picture of Christ on the cross is astonishing. It is astonishing. It will astonish you, child of God. Now, I know, I understand what people are they're trying to get the vision. Listen, you know, I, I have a certain idea of what I think Christ looked like, you know. And sometimes we see movies, you know, where it pictures him. But sometimes we get this idea that Christ stood out in the crowd, that he was something special to look at. Now, he's special to us. If I could see him, oh my, it would be so special. It would be overwhelming. But, but it's not because he's this great figure of a man. He wasn't a blonde-headed, blue-eyed, Nordic bodybuilder, you know. He was just an ordinary man in, in his form and in his visage. Wouldn't have stood out for any reason other than the spirit that he bore, you see. And I'll tell you, on the cross, what he suffered was more, I believe, than any man. Notice it says his visage, his face was so marred more than any man. He suffered more than any man has ever suffered. Now you think about it. I don't, I don't want to get too far afield on this, but go read Psalm 22 sometimes. You know, in the Gospels, we have a picture from a third-person view of Christ. We're looking at Him, and people are telling us what He looked like. But in Psalm 22, we read from a first-person account what happened to Him. Go read it sometime. It'll chill your bones because it talks about his heart turning to water. It talks about him being weak as water. It talks about all of the things that he suffered. Beloved, he suffered more than any man. And his form was more marred than the sons of man. It would violate the standards of television decency to put a picture, a true picture of Christ up on the TV set. You'd have to have all kinds of warnings because it is an astonishing view. We see him in his humanity. But notice in verse 15, we see him in his victory. We see him in the victorious position. Notice in verse 15, it starts out with the word so. So. And that tells us something. That means that only in this way could the work be completed. So. In other words, because of what he's done, because he, he was an astonishing uh, visage, uh, figure on the cross, because his visage was so marred more than any man, because he suffered what he did, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Many nations, child of God. Every kindred, nation, tongue, and people, in fact. Acts chapter, our uh, 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 revelation tells us over there in chapter 4 and chapter 5 that the people of God are in every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And notice what happens. The king shall shut their mouths at him. Now, during this time here on this earth, the kings said many things to him and he kept his mouth shut. He didn't open his mouth when he was here, and they said a lot of things to him. But, beloved, in his victory, the king's mouths are shut before him. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 26, as Peter is speaking there, he says, The kings of the earth stood up 
And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. That is an illustrious crowd. In fact, that's pretty much the rulers, all the rulers of the known world, at least in the Middle East in that day. If you had those people against you, you didn't have much hope. Your only hope would have been to get out of town, maybe head east over into China and that part, the parts of Asia. But I want you to see what happened here. They thought they had him right where they wanted him. But in fact, he had them right where he wanted them. <laughs> Not in the sense that they were doing his doing right or doing good, but in the sense that this was something that was going to happen and it wasn't going to work out the way they thought. He says they were, they were all gathered together. The people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. All these great men and great leaders, they came up against this little one uh, Jew from Galilee. And they were going to destroy him. They were going to get rid of him. They were going to do away with him. But you know, it didn't work out that way, did it? Because you see... The worship of Christ is still around while the worship of, of Nero and of the emperor is dissipated from the earth. You see, they couldn't do it. The king shall shut their mouths at him. And notice it says, for what they had not been told, what had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. You know, that's talking about the message of the cross. Nobody considered that. Nobody even thought of that. In fact, if I were trying to come up with a way to save God's people, I'd have never thought of the cross. In fact, back over in Psalm 22, it forecasts, it foretells the cross. It foretells him being lifted up on the cross when there weren't even anybody else being lifted up on crosses in that day. The cross was a Roman invention. It was a Roman institution. It was the most torturous way to die back in the time when David was prophesying they didn't, they didn't, they stoned people to death. They didn't put people on crosses. The things that they would never have considered, they heard. And let me tell you, child of God, the things that in your flesh you would not consider when you are born of the Spirit, you will. You will see and you will consider. And that leads us into the work of the suffering servant here in chapter 53. And I want to show you something, child of God. This work of the suffering servant was a powerful work. Look at verse 1. Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now that's an, that's an allusion right there to the power of the cross, the power that it took to go to the cross. You see, the suggestion here is of a bared arm. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, he just spoke the worlds into existence. He just said, let there be light, there was light, let there be earth, there was earth. You know, he just, all these things, he said it, he spoke it. And in fact, in Psalm chapter 8 and verse 3, he says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. See, the creation is just the finger work of God. It didn't take any effort on his part. He just, there it went, you know, spoke it, it came, into, came to pass. I like this quote from J. Vernon McGee that I found this is what he said about this. When God created the heavens and the earth, it was without effort. He merely spoke them into existence. When he rested on the seventh day, he wasn't tired. He had just finished everything. 
It was completed. But when God redeemed man, it required his bared arm, for salvation was his greatest undertaking. You see, the heavens and the earth and the creation are the fingerwork of God, but salvation is a different matter altogether. You back up just a few verses in verse 10 of chapter 52. He says, The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. When it came time to redeem his people, the Lord rolled up his sleeve and got to work. He had, he, it was a powerful work. But notice that it was a rejected work as we keep reading here in verse 50, chapter 53. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It was a rejected work. No, go back to verse 1. Who hath believed our report? That's not an inquiry. That's more of a lamentation. That's more of a, uh, you know, nobody's listening. Nobody's li Who hath believed our report? He is despised and rejected of men. Over in John, turn, you don't have to turn there this morning, but over in the 12th chapter of John, you can look in the verse, about verse 37 and 38. It talks about all the miracles he had done, yet they believed not on him. And it references this verse, verse, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is fulfillment of prophecy, this prophecy right here. We know this is talking about Christ because John writes about it in his gospel. You see, man in nature will not accept the work of Christ. He will not see it. He will not learn of it. He will not know it. You can give him all kind of tasks in regard to it, and he will not do it. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 40, Ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. Now that's not an invitation. Many people say, oh, see there, you can come. No, that's an indictment. That's an indictment of man in nature. That's, that's saying, listen, in nature, you will not come unto me. He told them to search the scriptures for them. You think you have eternal life. They are they that testify of me and ye will not come unto me that you might have life. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's Z-I-O-N-P-B-C-1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismccool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.